just thinking about it. Just thinking about it. I feel my cheeks getting warm. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Mm-hmm. I don't want to think about this person anymore. Yeah, that was golden. I love I it. I like simplicity and I like it to be very couples clean. All acted very simple. The matching couples. Oh my lord, I hate the matching couples. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I think I'm attracted to normal looking women. Right, but that's not accurate. You have weird taste. Those are all things that most of us could really improve on. It's gonna, it's gonna vary wildly, if anyone listens at all. That's what I call interesting. No real substance? That's super interesting. Fascinating, almost. Welcome to While We're on the Subject, where we talk about what we talk about. Now here's the show. Hi, Mike. Hey, John. What's on your mind this week? I know that we've been bringing up peeves a lot recently. and Quite a bit, yeah. want to say almost every other episode at this point. It seems pretty uh, ubiquitous. <laughs> Maybe like back-to-back episodes. But I do have one. Okay. There are people recently. I won't say who or where from. <laughs> All right. But they're really really poor use of grammar has been just getting under my skin. Okay. I'm glad to see you're on my page. Yeah. Generally I can like ignore it or laugh at it. Just haha. You made a mistake. It's okay. Nobody's perfect. But the other day this person was talking and they said something along the lines of I didn't knew that. I didn't knew that. That's that's pretty bad. Are they a native English speaker? Yes. Oh, yes. Wow. This is, if you're learning a different language and you make mistakes, you are not the person I am annoyed by. <laughs> <laughs> I'm annoyed by the people who grew up speaking the language literally their entire lives. I struggle to imagine how that's even possible, though. Like, how can you have grown up speaking language and then mess up the present and past tense i don't know i legitimately don't understand it this person does this and i just want to grab them by their hair or their ears or something and sit them down and pull out a grammar book and be like no this is how you speak the language you don't even need a grammar book you just need to be like are you talking about right now or the past grammar functions on a kind of internally consistent logic and the reason that you have tenses is because they matter. You're telling people what time you're talking about. Right. And if you're using the wrong one, it should be immediately logically obvious that you're communicating incorrect information. Yeah, well. It's like if you said last night when you were talking about the morning when you got up, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, that's just silly. Yes, it is silly. But it just, it just it doesn't occur to them. They don't get it. Do you ever tell them? Sometimes. Sometimes I do. Like, they'll yeah. be like, oh, I feel worst. Worst. Oh, man. Just, you mean worse? I think that is much more common, messing up the superlatives and comparatives. Yeah, I mean, it is. But, I mean, worst is when you're feeling the worst. I mean, there's, n- you know, it's just the worst. There's nothing worse than that. <laughs> it is bothersome. Yeah, it definitely gets to me. Because they're, they're the kinds of things that just sting at you. Just yeah, kind of get under your skin for me at least. Yeah, I don't mean to sound like I. I don't mean to sound so. Mm, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Condescending. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Maybe they just weren't good at English or speaking or something. Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe you know, their parents didn't speak English, 
And so that affected the way they speak it. I don't know. Maybe they've got lead poisoning. Maybe they do. Yeah. Maybe they have lead poisoning. All sorts of options out there. Uh, there's so many reasons why maybe they're just not good at it. But it still irks me. Well, it should irk you. Yeah, I have to fight sometimes for being like, hey, are you dumb? Why are you talking like that? Don't talk like that. Speak better than you're speaking now. But I can't. It would be inappropriate. Yeah, that's true. That would be a bit offensive in most settings. You'd have to know the person really well to be able to do that. That's true. That's true. And I do not know this person very well. And it's funny because other people who notice it, we just kind of look at each other and smirk. Mm, mm. Just, ah... Yeah. That's so-and-so, typical so-and-so. But at this point, it's becoming ridiculous. It's a sad state of affairs. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you should be annoyed by it because society is so complex now and there are so many moving parts all the time. Everything is based upon this foundation of being able to communicate and based upon this foundation of language. And if people are just blithely misusing and confusing different things within the language... It makes everything harder in life. Yes. It's the kind of thing that should be a baseline for everybody. Mm -hmm. Everyone can breathe. Everyone knows how to... Walk, for the most part. Sit on a toilet and be potty trained. Like, everybody knows how to eat. And everybody should know how to communicate basic ideas with language. Like, it's a tool that everyone should be able to use. Very much agreed. And it really irks me because the setting, educational or professional, doesn't really matter which is the kind of setting where you should be able to communicate effectively in a way that doesn't, I don't know, show your lack of knowledge or your ignorance. But really, there is no setting that should not require basic levels of communication. You know what I mean? Like, everyone should have basic communication skills. Unless you're in a club at 2 a.m. drunk and having loud noise blaring in your ears, you need to be able to communicate in every other setting. I'm willing to let it slide in a casual setting. Yeah, I guess. But if you're as deficient as this person sounds, this should be a focus. This is something that gets to me all the time, where I see people who are just obviously really bad at something that is just kind of a fundamental skill that they need to Uh have. And it's like, you have plenty of free time. Like, there is nobody that I know. I mean, maybe if you're a single parent with a bunch of kids and you work couple different part-time jobs and whatnot because you can't make any money. Like, sure, in that sort of situation, you have no free time. But the vast majority of people that I know who really suck at something have plenty of leisure time to play Xbox or to watch sports or whatever. You know, in this person's defense, they may not have that kind of free time. But you don't need that much. It's not that hard to improve these things. Just put in a little bit of time, put in a little bit of effort, and suddenly you'll be able to communicate like a normal halfway intelligent human being that's true i will admit this person does seem very much like the antithesis of everything that you are john (laughs) okay they're not thinkers but you know i i think that this sort of person could improve like i don't i don't think people appreciate how rapidly they could improve these sorts of things and like how much it degrades their opportunities in life you are never going to get hired for any kind of job with any sort of responsibility if you're misusing language like that. That's probable. You're probably right. It's just the return, like for that 
kind of low-hanging fruit, the return on investment is just so big. It's kind of like when you look at somebody who's super obese and they're 500 pounds, and it's like they could just make small adjustments and lose 100 pounds. There's so much low-hanging fruit there. Right. That person then needs somebody to set them straight. Yeah, that would probably help. Yeah. That would probably help. Sorry, sorry to be all up on my soapbox and preaching and whatnot, but like some of these things are so easy to make progress on that it's like just put in a, the smallest amount of effort. Just turn off SpongeBob one day a week and do something mildly productive. Just read a book. Yeah. Holy cow. If they just read a book, I'm willing to bet every dollar I have right now that this person has not read a book in the last three years. Probably since high school. I'm willing to take that bet too. I'm willing to risk it all <laughs> against anyone. I mean, I, I might lose, but the chances just seem so slim that it might be worth the risk. And I mean, I know that I'm not the most well-spoken person in the world either. Just at least I try. Well, there's a difference between not being incredibly eloquent and not being able to communicate basic ideas. Those are very different levels. I suppose that's true. Gosh. I have a boring made not for you. All right, all right. Mm-hmm. Just a reminder to everybody, this is when Mike chooses some random thing that he thinks is super boring, and I have to try to make it mildly uh, interesting. Okay, what do you got for me? Yeah, and this is super boring. <laughs> it's okay. inconsequential. There's no way that you can make this interesting. Dials. 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 Yes. Knobs, you know, to okay. turn the volume up or turn the volume down. Okay. Like on an old-fashioned TV where you would have sure. like a channel, dial, and a... Yeah. A knob, okay. whatever you want to call it. But you can't just say knob, right? Because you're not talking about door handles. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, I'm not talking about a door So it's, it's not just any knob. It's a dial. Right. Okay. Yes. Um. Okay. Admittedly, they don't seem particularly relevant since we've emerged into the land of touchscreens and nobody really uses dials for anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. here's what I would say about dials in their defense. Okay. They bring up a useful concept. Mm-hmm. So I mostly use them for lights that turn you know, from low light to bright. Mm-hmm. I think the useful concept is... <laughs> That not everything has to be binary, right? Not everything is on or off. All right. And most things in life need to be tuned to the right level. Mm-hmm. The best analogy for this sort of tuning is when you have a dial. And having it too low is problematic, and having it too high is problematic. And so you want to tune it in to the right level, right? Like, so if you're thinking about like a sound mixing board, you have to balance 10, 20 different things that are going on in this mm-hmm. mix. And having each of those dials adjusted to the right level allows all of the harmony to come through the way you want it to come through. If anything's turned way too low or anything's turned way too high, it throws off the mix. And so this is the sort of thing that can only be gauged with dials. Like, obviously, that's why they're important. That's why they're used, right? But, like, that concept of how you live your life, that it's not Mm. I am this way or it's not I do this thing. Just like what we were talking about with your complaint about this person you know and their language it's not like i don't speak well or i do speak well you're on this spectrum dials allow you to think about things in terms of a spectrum and allow you to say okay this thing i'm too low on i need to work on it and build it up 
And this thing, I'm already really strong, so I don't necessarily need to work on it. Now, that doesn't apply to everything in life because sometimes you want to lean into the things you're already really good at because you get the most out of those. Mm-hmm. But it's just useful to think about things in terms of a continuum. And from a control standpoint, dials rather than buttons or switches or anything else really let you feel how that works functionally. Sure. Yeah. That's what I'm going with. All right, John. I'm going to rate your attempt. All right. I'm going to give it like a C. A C? Yeah. I mean, the perspective, that's pretty good. It made sense. Wasn't quite rope? Yeah, it wasn't quite rope. Okay. But also, you didn't make dials any more interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But you were grasping at straws. It's misdirection. Yeah, you managed to pull a few out. And you came up with a pretty interesting concept that I'm sure people will think about. And when they see a dial... They'll think of you. But you know, another thing about dials that I think is useful, (laughs) I love how simplistic they are. Mechanically simple. That is true. I'll give you that. I think for a lot of things, we kind of value complexity to a certain extent. Like we want things that are more advanced that can do more things and whatnot, right? Mm -hmm. But a simple dial, it is so simple and there's so so little that can break with it. Like if you're thinking about a stove and you can turn up the heat, you can turn down the heat. Like it's just a piece of plastic on a little metal rod. There's nothing to break. It's very simple. Anyone can understand it immediately. There's a lot of upside. Like if you think mm-hmm. about what's easier to control, a stove or a microwave, microwave's got a hundred buttons and you don't know what to press. You don't know how do I get the time in. I'm not trying to set the clock. I'm trying to set the temperature. You don't know how to do that. Any new microwave takes 10 minutes to figure out. No, that's fair. That's yeah. fair. Go on. Stove? No no one needs to figure out a stove. Stove is immediate. You you get it immediately because it's a simpler thing. And that's what dials allow for. Like, if you had a microwave where you could just turn the volume up to the level you wanted, turn the time to the place that you wanted, and then it starts, that would be so much that sounds simpler. sounds like a toaster oven. It does sound like a toaster oven. But think about if a microwave had controls like that and not 20 buttons that you need to press. Okay, you are right. You aren't wrong. But hear me out. That's exactly why dials are boring. Ah, uh, okay, okay. <laughs> they're boring because they're simple and consistent and reliable. Yeah, they're, okay. they're pretty forgettable. They're the unsung hero of appliances. But the unsung hero implies that they're still a hero, man, which implies that there's a story to be told there. If I could just think of one, then <laughs> could come up with something better. Okay, attempt two, and I think I, I stumped him. I stumped them. Yeah, well, you know, that was a tougher one. That was a tougher one than last time. <laughs> Into the ground with dials. Yeah, I thought at that rope, there could be a way to, you know, talk about rope and maybe catch you off guard. But dials, as soon as I thought of something that there's just no way you could turn around, I, I went for it. Yeah, maybe I need to do some more research into it. Oh, I am willing to give you a redemption. I am willing to do that. Okay. Yeah, if you fail, everyone listening out there, if John fails, we will allow him one attempt at redemption. <laughs> one attempt. So he cannot bring see. it up in later episodes, like three episodes later, after he tried to redeem himself and failed and be like, well, I found this really interesting thing about... No. No, you don't get that. You get one attempt, John. Okay. Maybe maybe I'll give it another go next week. Or maybe I'll just be satisfied with this attempt. That's true. Who knows? I mean, I enjoyed your whole... Well, if you look at it, it really <laughs> provides a perspective or understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. is 
I'm sure something we would talk about in an episode. It is. I mean, yeah. Demographics, genetic engineering, and perspective. That's that's our main core. <laughs> that's pretty much everything, yeah. Yeah, so in that regard, it was a success. All right, so since I've enjoyed so much our sci-fi speculation on all sorts mm-hmm. of things from genetic engineering to automated vehicles mm-hmm. or autonomous vehicles. I keep saying automated vehicles. It's a real problem. You'll get it eventually. 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 I think it's because everybody talks so much about automation. At the same time, people are talking about autonomous vehicles. Yeah, anyway, it's a problem. It bothers mm-hmm. me. Those two words are too similar and too rarely used in every other way. Nobody says autonomous for anything other than autonomous vehicles. I say that all the time. Oh, yeah? When somebody says something that feels vaguely sexist against women, and I'll just start being like, they have full autonomy. Women are human beings. You can't just objectify them like that. So, yeah, I, I, that's when I use, you know, autonomy. But since we <laughs> need to speculate on some more potential scientific advancements, I just thought it would be fun to explore a little bit about terraforming and some okay. ideas around terraforming. This was brought into my mind because China has recently announced, and they've been working on things like this quite a bit for a while mm-hmm. but there's something called cloud seeding ah uh, yes yes i've heard of this so cloud seeding is essentially Ooh, wait really quick side note mm-hmm. people have all sorts of weird conspiracies about cloud seeding you know like putting chemicals in the air to like mm. brainwashes and stuff mm-hmm. i'll bring this up later but go on okay so cloud seeding is essentially this concept that you spray up a chemical or a mineral silver nitrate is the standard one And these particles are supposed to allow the moisture in the air to condense because you need some sort of particles. And so if the air is very clear and clean, the stuff won't condense. So you put silver nitrate up and it's supposed to cause rain, essentially. So you spray it into clouds or you spray it and then it forms clouds and then you get a lot more rain. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. China has done this all the time. Like when they had their 70th anniversary Last year, I think it was, maybe it was 2016, about their victory over the Japanese and the end of World War II. They mm-hmm. did a whole bunch of this over Beijing to make sure the skies were clear and everything for the parade, right? Because they wanted to make sure that in this city that is so often so polluted that they mm-hmm. didn't have it be problematic. So they've done this for a while, but they've recently expanded their efforts considerably. And mm-hmm. they've announced the largest ever project in tibet to greatly increase the rain in tibet Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. building a huge amount of infrastructure around this idea of cloud seeding and silver nitrate Uh it's just an interesting thing because as we progress like what we are moving toward is geoengineering where we are finally at the scale and especially as we start to try to deal with things like climate change right where we are whole-scale changing the environment. All right. While all of the ramifications of industry that caused climate change over the last couple hundred years and are continuing to cause climate change were kind of unintentional, now Mm -hmm. we are actively trying to manipulate the environment. Trying to Mm -hmm. eliminate or reverse climate change is actively getting involved. Mm -hmm. That's moving us in a direction where we're going to progressively develop capabilities around geoengineering and therefore terraforming right so sci-fi speculation john where does this take us 
or just the terraforming lead? The thing that I'm most interested with it, because I, I do think that environmental systems are extremely complex, mm-hmm. but this is the same issue that we're dealing with in terms of mapping the genome and working on gene editing and all of that, where you're dealing with something that before computers was so enormously complex that it was just really impossible to fathom how we would ever deal with it in any kind of comprehensive way. But increasingly, we are able to deal with it. And I think over the next couple decades, we will be able to tune the environment in the way that we think is ideal. Okay. I think we'll come up with a lot of different technologies that will allow for this. Now, Mm -hmm. the question is the scale those would need to be implemented in and how effective they would be on a smaller scale. But long term, like I'm talking about over the course of the next couple hundred years, Mm -hmm. I see us translating this greater technological acuity into trying to transform some other bodies in the solar system to be more favorably disposed toward life and toward our life in particular. Okay. And that's where terraforming comes in, right? Because terraforming, rather than geoengineering, is trying to transform other planets or other places to be more like Earth. That's the Terra. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So I just thought maybe we'd talk about a couple ways that you might go about terraforming other places and where we might try to terraform. Okay. So essentially there are two options in terms of places that we could terraform. There's Mars and Venus. That's pretty mm-hmm. much it. I mean, Venus Venus feels like that would be a tough tough one to, to successfully terraform. It's interesting because I feel like Venus would be harder, but ultimately better. Like, I think there's more potential there. Really? Yeah. And why is that? So there's a couple things. One is that it's unclear if the natural resources we need to sustain planet-wide life exist on Mars. Mm -hmm. So you need enough of an atmosphere, you need enough oxygen, you need enough of various chemicals and compounds that you can sustain life across the whole planet and that you can have a warm enough place. Like you need enough carbon dioxide to warm up the atmosphere. There are a lot of questions about even the basic possibility of that on Mars. Right. Not to say that we wouldn't be able to have a colony, but being able to actually terraform it to the point where it's like Earth, you may need to bring a huge amount of stuff from the asteroid belt or from somewhere else. Right. Which is like as hard as it is to change the local environment of one of these planets, I -hmm. think bringing things to the planet dramatically harder yeah yeah that's fair and and so the nice thing about venus is one it's about the same size as earth it's about the Mm -hmm. same mass as earth Mm -hmm. we have no idea what prolonged life on a planet that's only two-thirds the mass of earth would be so like Mm. living on the moon or living on mars that could potentially if you were born into that environment could change you in a radical and unhelpful way like we we don't know what that would cause Mm -hmm. venus has the same mass as earth so it has the same gravity so that's not an issue the other thing is venus is really hot which is a problem yeah it's a major problem but it's much it's not easier to deal with hot than it is to deal with cold it's much easier to deal with cold in a kind of a short-term narrow sense but Mm -hmm. it's much easier to expend heat than it is to generate heat Mm, i see what you're saying yeah i mean that makes sense yeah if you're talking about planet-wide transformation 
it would be much easier to either use the excess thermal energy there or to block additional thermal energy from the sun than it would be in Mars to try to gather additional thermal energy. The only way that you would be able to do that is to greatly, greatly increase the CO2 content of the atmosphere. I mean, there are other ways that you could try to manage it, but mm -hmm. it's going to be a very difficult process on Mars. It may be impossible. On Venus, it's definitely not impossible to get rid of heat. There are a number of different ways. Okay. And also, like we talked about in terms of the natural resources, Venus already has an extraordinarily thick atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they have all of the compounds that you would need. Their, their atmosphere is almost all carbon dioxide. If you have an mm -hmm. atmosphere that is extremely high in carbon dioxide, obviously it would be poisonous to life and it's extraordinarily hot. Yes. But there's enough of it that if we started to transform it, we could utilize the carbon dioxide to create a lot of methane, to create a lot of oxygen. How? What do you mean? How would we be able to do that? Well, think about how Earth works, right? Like there's carbon dioxide mm -hmm. in the atmosphere on Earth. Right. And that carbon dioxide is converted into oxygen. Mm -hmm. How is that done? Plants. Right. Plants through photosynthesis take energy and carbon dioxide and convert that. But what kind of plants would survive? Right. So this is this is the, the hard part about Venus. Yeah. You could now, today, launch rockets to Mars, land them on Mars, and in a controlled mm -hmm. environment on the Martian surface, have mm -hmm. things live, have plants live. Right. Like if you controlled the atmospheric environment around the plants, they could live on that planet. If you put them on to Venus, obviously they would burn up and disintegrate immediately. Yes. And so it would take a lot of stages. But one of the concepts that you could use on Venus is mm -hmm. you could have giant blimp-like cities. Go on. Because the atmosphere is so thick and because it's so hot, obviously it's going to be coolest at the top of the atmosphere. Sure. And because it's entirely carbon dioxide, or almost entirely carbon dioxide, you would not be able to function in the environment generally. So what you would have to have is something that floats at the top. You could have an oxygen-filled, or probably not oxygen because oxygen would explode, but you, you could have a giant blimp with helium or whatever it is floating and then have a bunch of plants within this controlled environment where you can control temperature and you can control the carbon dioxide levels and over the course of time convert that carbon dioxide into water and oxygen and all of that hmm. and as you lower the carbon dioxide levels of the planet the runaway high temperatures would also start to cool that sounds like it would take a very long time it would potentially take a very long time but this is the whole thing where as we figure out how to do this on earth and how we figure out how to tinker with the environment in kind mm -hmm. of a larger systematic way we will potentially gain insights of how to do that sort of thing much more rapidly and at scale on another right. body. Well, I was thinking more of the logistics of mm -hmm. getting something to Venus, mm -hmm. get it into the atmosphere without going too far down to the surface mm. and having it begin to float at the very top the atmosphere i don't know how that okay let, let's think about it logistically right mm -hmm. so the first step is you need to get this stuff off of earth right mm -hmm. okay so that's not the easiest but we know how to get things off of right. the planet as it is right right so we're talking about something to fill a blimp so that would be obviously extraordinarily voluminous 
So really, mm -hmm. really large and light. Well, we don't really need to have that. If we cool the temperatures of whatever gas we use for the blimp down to a very low temperature and we make the blimp collapsible, then you could have solid, probably not helium, but you could have solid nitrogen or something, mm -hmm. or at least liquid nitrogen. And then as it's in space, you could keep low temperatures, you could keep it really well insulated. And so you can keep that stuff in a relatively small, compact container. And then when you get to Venus, you can expand it out and allow it to evaporate and become gaseous and then have it fill up a blimp. I don't think the getting the stuff there is necessarily the problem, especially as it gets cheaper and cheaper to get right. things into outer space. But the initial problem is going to be getting things to survive there. And then long term, the, the problem is that it would just take so much time. Mm -hmm. But the real thing is, once you get to the point where you could have something sustained there indefinitely, mm -hmm. then even if it takes a thousand years, you can still do it. Right. And the potential to have an entire other planet the size of Earth that is as habitable as Earth is such an enormous upside that it would make sense to make that sort of investment even if it took hundreds of years right that makes sense i know that i might sound a bit crazy here but i i just think that no, we like crazy get deeper <laughs> everyone's so focused on mars and mars really doesn't offer the same prospects that venus does i mean it's just because at first glance it just doesn't look like a very good choice right no i i get that it sounds good your idea sounds good it just seems difficult getting things to survive there like would you just have the rocket like pass through the very outer edge of the atmosphere and sort of drop the blimp contraption off and just sort of hope that the heat causes it to expand and it just stays up there well you would probably want to engineer this so that you're not just like hoping but what you would probably do is you would probably launch a rocket so that it goes into lower earth orbit or sorry low venus orbit mm -hmm. and from there it'll gradually degrade in its orbit mm -hmm. but yeah you would have to set it up so that as the temperatures rise around it it will gradually expand and become more buoyant and then mm -hmm. it'll float at a certain level of altitude that you had planned on it floating in like obviously there would be a huge amount of advancement that would need to happen before this to allow for that sort of thing but right. i think the key when you're looking at terraforming something like venus like the, the the one thing that you can't change or that we don't yet have any understanding of how you would change other than just bringing a bunch of stuff is mm -hmm. gravity you're not going to be able to take mars and make it the mass of earth that's not right. possible as far as we mm -hmm. understand but everything that makes venus terrible and this incredible hellscape mm -hmm. we know how to change you could use solar shielding to reduce the temperature of venus mm -hmm. so as with every other body in the universe it's expelling its heat mm -hmm. gradually so if you put giant mirrors or a series of small mirrors or solar panels or something to that effect on the solar side of Venus and you uh -huh. floated them out in kind of a what we would think of as a geosynchronous orbit, but just actually Venus, a geosynchronous orbit would probably be so far out because it spins so slowly that uh -huh. it would be unmanageable. But anyway, you float mirrors between it and the sun, reflecting the sunlight away. If you did this for a certain percentage of the planet, you would greatly reduce the incoming energy, which means that all of the energy that is expended from the planet 
would be at deficit, right? And mm -hmm. just as we see on Earth, increasing CO2 levels will increase our temperature, right? And it will increase the greenhouse effect. If you block sunlight on Venus and you reduce the CO2 by bringing in these blimps with plants, mm -hmm. then over time, you will reduce the temperature of the planet. Okay. Now, it's possible that there are other things that you can do to reduce the CO2 level more rapidly than bringing plants and things. And it's possible, like, yeah. as we expand our capabilities in terms of genetic engineering, it's possible that we'll be able to engineer organisms that will consume much more CO2 than anything that we have currently. Right. It's hard to predict those sorts of things, but I yeah. think that those things are possible. Changing the mass of Mars, not so possible. All right, so say that we have this crazy blimp operation. Okay. And it's successful. Yes. And then we have planet two. Yes. Venus. Mm-hmm. What would be the next step? Would Earth continue to keep reaching out and trying to terraform other planets? If, say, they were successful with Venus, I'm assuming that they probably would have gone after Mars first. And if there were success there, would they go further? I think Mars might end up being very much like the moon, where we try to establish colonies out there. Mm -hmm. Not that we've established colonies on the moon, but we will go there and we will maybe establish a colony on Mars. But I don't think that any kind of effort at actually terraforming Mars will take place because it remains to be seen whether or not that's really feasible. Okay. Trapping as much energy as you need in order to warm it up. Like, essentially what you need to do with Mars is you need to warm it up to such an extent that the poles where you have a lot of frozen carbon dioxide melt and then evaporate. I don't know of any way that we would warm the planet by that much. That requires a huge amount of warming, and we don't have any mechanism for that at this point. Maybe we can just build smog machines there. Well, but this is the whole thing. You need something to power those, right? That's true. The way we've increased CO2 here is we've burnt old dead things, right? We've burnt oil, we've burnt coal, yeah. we've burnt natural gas, which is just a whole lot of carbon and energy locked up in these dense materials. Right. We burn them and we release all of that into the atmosphere. Well, Mars mm -hmm. doesn't have any of that stuff. Mars doesn't or at least we don't think, has ever had life of any sort. And so they right. are not going to have all of these organic compounds. Mm. And so it's highly questionable about whether or not that's even a feasible thing to do. And even if you melt all of the carbon dioxide in the poles and in the ground, and it, you get it to a temperature where it's not absolutely freezing all of the time, mm -hmm. it's unclear if that will release enough carbon dioxide to make the atmosphere go on the spiraling greenhouse effect where it continues to warm and gets to a reasonable temperature. It's possible. It's possible, but I'm, I'm unconvinced. It's much easier to deal with excess resources than maybe we don't have enough resources. All right. But sorry, back to your question. So you're assuming we would go to Mars first. Regardless of whether that's successful or not, we move on to Venus and right. let us assume Venus is a success. Okay. Being the creatures that we are. Obviously, we're not just going to settle for one planet. Clearly. Do you think by the time we would be capable of doing something like that, we would have the technology to travel space in any meaningful way? Or do you think the success of terraforming 
Venus would lead to like another boost in space exploration or interest in space exploration that would lead to legitimate, meaningful technology that does allow for sci-fi like space travel. Obviously, it's impossible to tell. John, we're speculating. I, I realize that, but I guess the reason why I say that is because I think terraforming Venus, everything that will be required for that, we will continue to advance on just by the progress that we're making on Earth. Okay. So genetic engineering, we're talking about being able to get off of Earth more easily to launch satellites for cheaper and to get things into space for cheaper. Uh-huh. You're talking about us and trying to manipulate the environment on Earth. All of these things are things that we're going to develop whether or not we go to Venus. And right. so going to Venus will be made easier by all of these advancements. Mm-hmm. I think when you're talking about interstellar transit, mm-hmm. that will require breakthroughs and advances technologically that it's unclear if it's possible and even if it is possible nothing that we're doing today will necessarily move us toward that Mm, true so even if we were to completely terraform venus successfully that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to make any kind of advancement toward interstellar travel so if we can't go beyond our star Mm-hmm. We would have to look at the other bodies in our solar system. And Mercury is far too hot. Mercury mm-hmm. is never going to happen. Right. There's no atmosphere, and it's way too hot, and it's way too close to the sun, and there's just nothing to be done there. Right. So then you have to look further out into the solar system, and there are not a lot of options. I mean, obviously the gas giants are out because right. they're gas giants. So I yeah. guess you could look at moons, mm-hmm. but they have the same problem that they're super cold. They're even colder than Mars. The ones right. that could potentially hold life are almost entirely made of water, or at least have a large portion of water and they're covered by ice. And so it seems unlikely that we would be able to make those habitable. Now, the one wild card with that is I, I think it is possible that we would eventually advance to such a degree that we could move things around in the solar system. Really? Yeah, I I think it's possible. One of the things that I do think about for terraforming Venus that will be not necessary, but potentially quite useful, is if we could commandeer some water-heavy asteroids or comets. Mm. Obviously, Venus is way too hot. Right. We need water to sustain life, and so bringing extra water is obviously useful. And so if you took a comet and you crashed it into Venus at the right angle... Oh, the other problem with Venus is that it doesn't spin enough. So its mm-hmm. day is about the same length as its year, Ooh, roughly. That sounds terrible. So that means one side is going to be... Like, if we get it down to an Earth-like atmosphere, one mm-hmm. side will be super hot all the time, and one side will be super cold all the time. Mm. And that will change very slowly. And so that will be very difficult to make nice, I guess. <laughs> like, right. It's, it's just going to be real tough. Yeah. And so... If you crashed a large enough comet at the right angle into Venus, potentially Mm -hmm. you could give it a lot more spin Mm. and you would shorten the day, not all the way down to the length of our days, but you could shorten the day somewhat and you could give it a lot of water. And because this is a giant block of ice, you could cool down the temperatures on the planet substantially. Okay. You know, like there are potential uses for those sorts of things, but I think whether or not we do that, we will be mining asteroids and moving asteroids around in the nearest future. Now, obviously, asteroids are very small compared to, like, a moon. Right. But 
if we get to the point where we figure out ways to economically move around bodies in the solar system, we could mm-hmm. potentially move something like Titan and try to bring it into the inner solar system. I think that that is a bigger stretch than terraforming. Like terraforming already seems like a huge stretch. Right. But I think being able to move something as large as Titan is uh-huh. also a stretch. <laughs> right. Titan is larger than Mercury, I believe. Right. That, that would just be unlikely. Mm-hmm. But I think that if we were to move beyond Venus and potentially Mars, the next step would be moving to one of the moons. And I think that mm-hmm. would only really be feasible if we were able to bring it closer to the sun. Okay, so terraforming would be a very long process, and we'd maybe get a planet out of it. I think we would. I think I, I think it's very likely. That's a win, I guess. Yeah, a planet. Well, just think about everything that Earth has. You just double it. That's a big win. That's a major win. Yeah, that's true. Also, I think there are unforeseen advantages of this. So many things that we understand about the universe are based upon Mm. our experience on earth and based upon the way earth shapes our readings of physics right just having another planet would allow us to compare those things like when Mm, we're talking about the recent advances in gravitational waves where Mm -hmm. now when two black holes merge or two neutron stars collide or something like that we can measure it through gravitational waves well, if right. you had two monitors of gravitational waves on different planets, it'd be so much more precise and so much more sensitive. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there would be a lot of observational science that could be improved if we could consistently read things, not just on Earth and in low Earth orbit, but on Earth, in low Earth orbit, on the Moon, on Venus. If we had more facilities, we would be able to advance things much more rapidly. Do you think there'd be any unforeseen drawbacks? Well, I mean, I think the political ramifications would be significant. Mm. Even with all of the immigration that we have in the world today, right? it's a relatively small portion of the population that moves every year. Mm-hmm. If you think back to the early colonization of the Americas or Australia, yeah. and you think of mm-hmm. how few people as a percentage of the population moved to those places early on, mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing you're talking about with going to Venus. Very, very few people would move between so they would really become culturally and politically quite distinct, I would think, Earth and Venus, if we had right. those two planets. So there's, you know, obviously potential conflict and potential warfare and everything right. between those, or potential abuse of power where Earth dominates Venus and they don't have the same kinds of freedoms and liberties that we would have here or something like that. It's right. it's obviously that all of that is, that that's the kind of thing that we don't have to have, but is quite likely, I think. So do you think if we were to successfully terraform Venus. Mm -hmm. And after X amount of time there, obviously we've made it habitable. Things are going to, you know, grow and develop on their own. Right. Single cell organisms, bacteria, viruses. Do you think that would have potentially a really negative impact on the people who are living there that are from Earth, even if they have been there for a few centuries? Right, and this is the thing... That's really so difficult to parse because it really is all based upon the volume of transit between the planets. Mm-hmm. Because in the same way that the Americas had people right. who essentially came from Asia 10,000 years before. Mm-hmm. But then when Europeans showed up, all of these diseases that had advanced and had developed in people absolutely destroyed everybody in the Americas, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you had very little contact between the two planets 
diseases definitely could develop and become problematic. What I mean is, even for the people already living there that haven't even experienced these potential diseases that might not have cultivated or developed here on Earth, but would, you know, naturally arise there, right? Because if you make a planet habitable, eventually things are going to start growing on their own. So you're saying, like, new diseases will arise? Yeah. Maybe not new diseases, but life will eventually start developing on its own, right? Of course, yeah. If you have a planet and you make it habitable. But it will only progress from the things that we've brought there. That's true. I suppose that's true. Well, I mean, if we were able to do something, like you were saying, bringing an asteroid or what have mm. you to hit the planet and it's full of water, and yeah, even after we do that, it still takes several centuries, but we keep pushing and doing everything we can, and it sort of jumpstarts life or something by accident, and as it's developing, the planet does become habitable, and we eventually move there as these like little single-celled organisms start existing. I don't think it would jumpstart life without us actually bringing life. Like, it would take so <laughs> long for life to develop. I mean, I understand that it would take a very, very long time for something like that to happen on its own, and obviously we wouldn't be waiting around for that. We would yeah. just, oh, it's ready to be lived on, going in. And if we were to do that thing, like I was talking about with crashing a comet on into the planet, mm-hmm. we would do that at a point where the temperature is still so high that nothing could live. Mm. And there's no reason to think that a comet would foster life any more than anything else. Life would probably take, at minimum, hundreds of thousands of years to develop after the planet got to a habitable temperature. Right. And so I doubt that that would be a problem. There, There is a real problem with the things that we bring mutating and becoming different. I guess that's true. I was just... I'd assume that if we somehow crawl a giant asteroid full of water to smash into the planet we might get a couple of oceans and we don't know if the oceans would be necessarily habitable for our fish or some of our fish and not for others Mm. and maybe there'd be large bodies of water that are just totally untouched by any life that we bring except for maybe us swimming in it or something Mm -hmm. and over maybe tens and hundreds of thousands of years <laughs> maybe something springs to life in one of those lakes or bodies of water or what have you well i think what's much more likely is that the things that we do bring will see the pressures of the environment mm-hmm. and they will evolve in such a way because of those pressures that is unexpected and so if there is a body of water or something that is uninhabitable to current sea creatures for instance, mm. it might pressure them in such a way that they become different in such a way that is highly detrimental to our continued existence there. This is one of the difficulties with terraforming. Even if we move the planet so that it is largely habitable and largely similar to Earth, it's still a very different place. Right. It still has very different environmental structures. And this is one of the many reasons why we need to have continually improving understanding of our environment because like here on earth we have things like the jet stream we have things like the gulf north atlantic current Mm -hmm. we have things like the uk and ireland and france are much warmer than they should be considering how far north they are but Mm -hmm. they get all of this warm water piped up to them from the gulf of mexico and that warms them up Mm -hmm. we know that that is a thing that exists on earth we kind of have some sense of why that exists. 
mm-hmm. but we don't have any sense of how you would manipulate it or what might break that or what might cause problems. All right. As the water gets less salty, does that cause problems? It seems like it might. Mm-hmm. And controlling those sorts of factors or understanding the ramifications of those sorts of factors, if we were to try to do something like that on Venus, it's really hard to know how any of that would work. And it's really hard to understand how the pressures of the environment there would change things. You could easily see that some bacteria that we didn't expect completely takes over an ocean there and starts producing a gas that is super poisonous and then starts killing off everything. And then you start to see total ecological collapse. We would have to know so much more to build the environment effectively. Right. You know what always seems really unfortunate about these kind of things? What? Is that it's never like a bacteria we have to worry about that's going to develop and give people superpowers or make animals smarter. I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Okay. It's never like. And then this really awesome things ha- happens. It's always, and then people start dying, or well, get caught by a new disease. I think that's the natural state of things. It's kind of like economics. Everything in life <laughs> is trying to. Everything's always like economics. Everything in life is fighting for survival. Nothing is trying to help you survive. Everything is trying to help itself survive. Well, I know, but sometimes... So it's much more likely to kill you than it is to help you. I'm saying some things thrive when you thrive. You know, there's bacteria in your body that wants you to stay alive for as long as you can because it keeps it alive. Yeah, there are some symbiotic organisms, but they yeah. are few and far between compared to the competitive organisms. I know. It's such a bummer. Looking at economics again, there are a lot of companies that thrive because General Motors needs parts for their cars, but those Uh are many fewer companies than the other companies in the rest of the world. Right. I know. Just just, it'd be fun if moving to a different planet and terraforming led to something really unexpected and positive, but almost in like a freaky sort of way, you know? One of the cool things about if we were to successfully terraform Mars is that you could go there for super weird superpower vacations because you would be able to jump really high and run really fast and lift yeah. giant, really heavy things. See, I feel like that would be cool. It would make you feel better about yourself. Even if you were just there for <laughs> a week, you come back to Earth and you're just like, oh, everything's so heavy, life's terrible. But man, Mars, I felt unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, I feel like if we established a community on Mars and some permanent colonies, it would be great to have like a Martian sports league where you just have some sort of sport that you would build up where people jump like 20 feet in the air. Okay, they probably couldn't jump 20 feet in the air, but right, you could jump a lot more. They'd probably make a really awesome X Games style oh, sport yeah. from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jump That'd and do like nifty. 86 flips and grab your toes and do a reverse front backflip while you're in the middle of the air. I'm just imagining like gymnastics super advanced gymnastics where you do like Like 30 flips from the vault yeah extreme gymnastics like a bunch of bros doing it you know they have like the x game shirts and and the monster energy hats and they wear the those sunglasses what are they called i have no idea i I don't know either but they're notoriously uh connected with those sort of people that live in Huntington Beach that drive giant monster <laughs> trucks. Okay, okay. Some brand of sunglasses. I, I can't for the life of me remember what the brand is. But, you know, that's what that kind of gymnast would be associated with. Mm. It'd be a really bro-y sport. I could see that. Yeah. Because in, in that sort of environment, strength would matter much more than weight. 
because mm. like your strength to weight ratio would be much greater. Mm. Like an extra pound of muscle would give you a lot more bang for its buck. So you'd have like Schwarzenegger as the best gymnast in the world. I'd imagine those Scottish sports would be really popular there. Throwing a tree log or a giant rock. They're all throwing based. I don't know why. They're not all throwing based, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of throwing of giant <laughs> objects. Yes, that's true. Let's get the cape toss. <laughs> right. And it would just be so cool on Mars, I think. It'd be huge. That would be pretty cool. There'd be some pretty interesting sports that yeah. come from that. I feel like it'd be a lot of fun. So, John, mm-hmm. earlier you were telling me that you had trouble distinguishing between automation and autonomy. And funnily enough, as I was looking at our notes, I saw that automation was something that you wanted to talk about. It is. So I think there's a lot of fear around automation nowadays. Mm-hmm. And this is not a new thing. For hundreds of years, people have been afraid of losing their jobs to machines. Yeah, well, machines are the best. Humans get tired. It's just true. This is, this is true. But I think that this fear of automation largely died out for most of the 20th century and mm-hmm. has really come back in powerful force over the last 10 years. Yeah. And I just think it's useful to look at automation from a slightly different perspective. Uh-huh. So originally, what automation did, sewing machines and the steam engine and, and basic things like that, right. what they did was they took machines and allowed us to release human effort. We did Mm -hmm. not have to put out our own effort to provide basic things for our material needs, right? Right. We no longer had to put in nearly as much effort into producing food or transportation Mm -hmm. or clothing or anything like that. Right. So you took what required a ton of time and energy and effort for all of us every day, and you made it cheap and easy for everyone. Okay. And what I think we're potentially seeing going forward is a similar thing except expanding the range of goods and services that are cheap and easily accessible. How so? So at this point in rich societies, all of our basic needs are really cheap compared to basic, like standard, normal, average incomes. Uh Uh-huh. So food, clothing, shoes, transportation, rent is maybe a different conversation, but most things are relatively cheap. And I think as we continue to automate and we continue to advance, a good way to think about what is happening is because you're eliminating human labor from these things is you're making a lot of these goods extraordinarily cheap. So as we talked about in one of our previous conversations when we were talking about autonomous cars, Mm -hmm. you get to the point where certain large portions of what people consume are just extraordinarily cheap. Right. So once transportation is really cheap and electricity is really cheap and food is really cheap and all of these things make up a smaller and smaller portion of your income, you can Mm -hmm. pretty much live pretty well on very little money. Right. Now, where people get afraid is obviously if you're unemployed, you make no money. That is scary. But the problem here or the potential problem for people, and I'm not saying that I have any sort of solution, is not the automation, and not the reduction in jobs, because those things are fundamentally good. Those things are fundamentally beneficial. Mm -hmm. The problem is who gets the rewards from that production? Who owns what is produced? Right. 
Okay. D- does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so anyone who's afraid of advancing mechanization and advancing joblessness, I've listened to a number of people who have been talking about we will potentially have 15 to 20% of the population structurally unemployed, as in they will never be able to get a job again in the next 20 or 30 years. I think uh-huh. that that is wildly inaccurate because I think just as we've always had over the last several hundred years, new technologies create a lot more supply of goods and services for much cheaper prices, and they drive a lot more demand because people want to spend their additional newly freed Uh up resources on other things, and so people get jobs in a bunch of other new unexpected industries. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because one of the things that people often point to with this is that the only new jobs created from these new industries are like programmers. Programmers are one of the only really high-level jobs that have been created by like the computerization of the world in the last 50, 60 years. Mm -hmm. While when you look at a lot of the jobs that employ lots and lots of people, those jobs Mm -hmm. are going away and everyone's afraid with autonomous cars and everybody, all of the truck drivers and things will lose their jobs. But one of the Mm -hmm. things to think about is that these new technologies, while they may not create a huge number of direct jobs, like computer programmers are created by computers or they're Mm -hmm. required by computers, but computers also create a huge number of jobs for a lot of other industries. And these are jobs that already existed, but there are just more of them now. Such as? Well, let, let's go back in time a little bit to earlier inventions. If you'll close your eyes. <laughs> yes, if you'll close your eyes. Let's, let's go back in time and think about this in terms of the car, for instance. Okay. The car wiped out everything in terms of breeding of horses and creating of horseshoes and mm. reduced demand for horse feed and whatnot, hay, I guess, or oats or whatever horses consume. Right. But... They obviously created jobs around the production of cars. That's one Mm -hmm. thing. But something that is underappreciated is they also created the production of stoplights and the production of street signs and the production of roads. And they caused increased production of a lot of other things throughout the economy. The creation of semi-trucks that could transport goods between cities, international shipping, it would not have developed nearly to the extent that it did if you didn't have cars to transport goods once it got to port. And Mm. so there are tons of secondary and tertiary impacts that you don't see if you're just looking at the jobs created in that industry. Right. So you look at, to take the example of computers, you have certainly... The computer programmers, but you also have all of the bloggers. Like there are lots of bloggers who make their full-time income as bloggers. And all of those people have jobs only because of computers. If you right. look at anybody who works in an internet firm or anybody who works in any sort of firm that does anything on the internet, like Amazon, mm-hmm. all of that stuff is only possible because of computers. And so all of those different job categories that are involved in those areas only grew because of this advance and so while it killed off a lot of jobs and it can will continue to kill off a lot of jobs it creates a lot of other jobs Mm. but that's even kind of a side point because the main point is that it's always good to increase automation it's always good to increase productivity because that will always push forward society and raise wages and make things more advanced and cheaper Uh but if people want to get upset or people want to get scared What they need to be concerned about is the structure of the economy and who benefits from the increases in automation. 
So who are the people that they should be worried about? We should be worried. All people should be worried about. I don't personally really think that there's anybody or any group in particular that we need to be afraid of or angry with. But essentially, the people who benefit are the owners of companies, Uh so stockholders and whatnot, and the people who continue to be employed at these companies. Mm -hmm. So you look at a company like Google, obviously the company's owners and the employees. Like I think the average salary or something that was announced recently at Google is something like $200,000 or something like that. Not bad. It's not. And obviously they're reaping the rewards of their extraordinarily efficient firm that Mm -hmm. requires very little human labor for a huge amount of productive value. Right. This is a standard thing. And if we continue to create jobs, then that's a fine situation. Mm-hmm. I grant that if we do not continue to create jobs in that more pessimistic vision of the world, mm-hmm. then we have to think about this slightly differently. And this brings me to that conflict of ideas. Ooh, a conflict of ideas. Yes. Between abundance and scarcity. In the blue corner, we have abundance. <laughs> in the red, scarcity. Yeah, so a lot of people have talked about how our economy is increasingly switching to an economy of abundance. Mm-hmm. And most people talk about this in respect to the internet. Okay. And to a lesser extent, renewable energy. But it's the idea that with the internet, distribution is essentially free. As we talked about, when price drops close to zero, you have this quasi-state of abundance. Right. But our entire economic system, and capitalism just generally, is based upon this concept of scarcity. Mm -hmm. So scarcity, for those who don't quite understand what I'm saying is this idea that we have unlimited desires as people Mm. and we have limited resources. Mm. So everyone might enjoy having a Rolls Royce or a penthouse apartment on Fifth Avenue, but you cannot provide that to everyone because there are limited numbers of penthouse apartments on Fifth Avenue and there are limited numbers of Rolls Royces. So generally, we distribute these things through the price mechanism. Mm Now, the idea that we would go switch to an economic model of abundance is based upon this idea that we are able to produce so much of something for so cheap that it's Mm -hmm. essentially negligible. That you get to a point where a good is so cheap that people don't consume any more of it. That changes in price don't affect the amount of consumption. John, I... Need to ask. I don't know mm. if you have an example of something like this, mm. or if this is more just like a theory. Well, I think the most obvious example is the internet. So generally, people have unlimited internet access, mm-hmm. which means that there is no price. That is almost okay. by definition abundance. You pay your monthly fee, and I mean, I guess there is a price because you're paying the monthly fee, but once you have it, you have it and you can use as much as you want. Right. And just because it's free doesn't mean that everyone uses as much as they can and downloads 100 movies a day. Mm -hmm. So people, at a certain point, when they have unlimited access to internet and it doesn't cost them any more to use more, Mm -hmm. they only use what they use. Does that make sense? No, no, it does. Yeah, so with a zero marginal cost, with zero additional expense for consuming more, they don't consume anymore, which means they've kind of reached the saturation point where they've reached abundance, where they have as much as they could want okay you see a similar thing with water in a lot of places water's free like here in ireland mm-hmm. they actually had oh some major protests a year or two ago yeah. because they Didn't started the trying to charge for water people were not having it they were not they were not and, oh no way so lots of 
places still have free water, but even places that charge for water, it's so cheap to get water from the tap that generally people only consume as much as they consume. You know what I mean? Like the price is not a factor in their thinking. And when Mm -hmm. you get to the point where price is not a factor in your thinking, you're essentially at abundance, that it's just essentially free. As far Mm -hmm. as I was ever concerned in the States, water was free. (laughs) Like the only concern for me in California was the drought. It was not so much an issue of price as it was an issue of trying to help society be better. In the same way that like when you think about littering, right? Mm -hmm. Throwing trash on the ground, it's not that you do that because it costs you something. You don't do that because you're trying to make society better. True. Fair. As you see more and more goods switch into this thing where price is no longer a factor, mm-hmm. then you do start to move into this world of abundance. Okay. But because everything is based upon scarcity, you have this conflict. And it's hard for me to understand how the economy will change as more and more things enter into this kind of abundant state. Because you're still going to have most things operate on this economy of scarcity. And this is where I think the dichotomy comes in. If you can get everything you need to live for 5% of the average income, I mean, obviously we're not close to that right now, but like if if you get to that point where everything that you need to live is 5% of the average income, then you have the ability to have incredibly different incomes because people can live on 5% of the average income. So you could have this underclass of very poorly paid people and they can still survive just fine. Mm. I'm not, I I, I guess I'm not, I I don't know the point that I'm trying to get at with this. I mean, something to think about. Yeah, I, I don't think we will ever switch over to total abundance. And I think this is the thing that people miss. Like when people are talking about universal basic income, mm-hmm. which is this idea that everyone in a society gets a certain amount of money from the government every month. Right. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're, or you're poor or you work or you don't, everyone gets the same amount, whether it's $50 a month or $500 a month, that sort of thing is debated, but everyone would get it. And it's so hard to fathom the ramifications of that. The reason to have that sort of thing is if you do think that we are moving into this environment where a lot of people cannot be employed. Right. There are a number of threads here that all relate to each other, but it's hard for me to tie them together. You know what I mean? I do. Well, I mean, it sounds, and I'm probably going to phrase this poorly. Generally, it seems like there's this idea, there's this this fear, right? Mm. Automation is going to have a pretty negative impact on people, income, I don't know, maybe by extension, the economy in some way. But you generally are under the impression that, you know, automation technologies lead to new jobs and lead to cheaper products, right? Well, and I think here's the, here's the kernel that's important. Ideally, the way this would go forward, if we really didn't need people or we didn't need as many people to produce the things that we need to live, all of that human effort and human time could be spent trying to solve problems that still exist and advance our society in other ways. Like we have spent a lot of time on this podcast speculating about science fiction and speculating about future technologies and the advancements that we could see in genomics and the advancements that we could see in things like terraforming and AI and all of that. Mm -hmm. And those sorts of advancements require a lot of effort and work and thinking Mm -hmm. to the extent that we don't need people to produce clothing and we don't need as many people to produce 
food and water and all of that. Right. We could direct that knowledge and that effort into these productive things that are advancing society. And and this is the key about automation, right? Like you're freeing up so much time and effort and human capital. Mm-hmm. If we successfully push that capital in the right direction, we could advance society much more rapidly. And and this is where it becomes difficult with the free market because I just recently was reading a lot of statistics around labor in the United States in particular. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about how Essentially, the number of men from the age of 18 to 35, right? Uh-huh. Or was it 18 to 30? doesn't matter. 18 to 30, I think it was. Right. That are unemployed and not looking for work, just out of the labor market altogether, has doubled since 2000. It went from mm. about 10% to about 20%. Wow. And these are people that are not pursuing education. These are people that are not furthering themselves. They're not making any sort of money they're living with their parents or they're living with a sibling or a spouse or something like that but they are not providing any sort of effort that is productive for themselves mm-hmm. or for society one of the things that they've spent a lot more time on is video games that's the primary thing that has grown in their time usage they're not spending any more time with friends they're not spending any more time socializing they're spending a lot more time playing video games and watching TV. Okay. When you look at that, this is where you start to see the problem. A lot of the gains that are being accrued from this automation are going to fewer people, potentially. Mm -hmm. And the people that are kind of, as people often put it, left behind by this are just sitting on their hands and doing nothing. Like you and I, obviously, and we talk about on the show all the time, are relatively focused on development, relatively focused on progression, moving forward, improving ourselves, whether it's in the job or outside of the job. But Mm -hmm. that is not the mentality of a lot of these people. And I I think one of the problems that we need to deal with with all of this stuff that I'm trying to pull together in this conversation is what kind of incentives can we put in place to where these people can be directed to put effort into something and to be directed and to receive rewards from putting effort into things that are productive for society that can help us solve some of these problems, can help us move forward and advance in some of these different areas, you know? I mean, well, because I'm sure some of those people, maybe they had jobs that don't exist anymore. I mean, I doubt it. I'm sure some of them are just addicted to video games. Well, see, that's, that's the interesting thing, because that would apply to older men. In the survey that I was reading, it was talking about how older men from like 30 to 55, so prime uh-huh. age working men, a lot of them, you might speculate, would have had their jobs eliminated or something like that, and so they're not working anymore. But in mm-hmm. fact, the rate of joblessness and the rate of completely leaving the labor force and not having worked in the last 12 months for the younger men has increased much more rapidly than the older men. Hmm. And it's not because their jobs got made redundant. Like when you're 20, it's not like you have a career that you've been working in for a decade and your job has gone away. When you're 20, you're just entering, trying to figure out what to do. Right. So are these just people who who just never worked and put their focus into things like video games and watching television and that's just their life? They're not contributing in any way? It's hard to figure out individually. But yeah, these are people that do not have bachelor's degrees. So they're Uh either high school dropouts or they've graduated high school. Most of them live with their parents. They're being essentially supported by their parents. Uh They haven't worked in the last 12 months. They may have had a job at some point. They probably have had a job at some point but they have not worked in the last 12 months. These are people who are, in a certain respect, wasting away. They're, they're wasting their energies 
And even if they're uh-huh. enjoying their energies, like that's fine. And and I don't want to call that bad playing video games. Like I've played right. a lot of video games in my time. These are things that are not necessarily the worst thing in the world. But from a societal perspective, yeah. Here, here's what we need to do. We need to figure out how to make sure that the benefits of these advances in automation move all of society or a large portion of society forward and how to make sure that for those people who are being excluded from these advances, how to make sure that we can direct their efforts and their energies and incentivize them to benefit society and how we can incentivize them to put out effort. Because things like the universal basic income, what we're doing there is just making it easier for them to live with their parents and play video games. Right. And we're making that less of an unappealing option. A lot of people talk about, oh, it can spur innovation. It can spur people to become entrepreneurs because you can leave your job without being afraid that you're going to be out on the street in a couple months. And so you can go try to start a company. And while that's possible, the bigger issue is that 20% of non-college attending, non-college graduate men aged 18 to 30 who are just doing nothing. Maybe what you could do if you had something like the UBI if you see people aren't working or contributing or getting an education, maybe you could create some incentive or you could offer like a slightly higher amount. If say the universal basic income, like a monthly income was, was a thousand dollars. You could provide some kind of incentive where if, People who aren't working or aren't going to school decide to pursue a secondary education. You would provide $1,200 a month and it would go towards the education. Okay. If that makes sense. So if... So it'd just be for those people studying. Right. Okay. Right. And kind of think of it as those like military ads, you know? All right. Get your life together. Join the military. Sure, sure. But it'd be... More like, get your life together, go to school, and we'll give you a little extra money than you're used to getting. Well, but see, the problem with this, the, the mm-hmm. problem with that sort of thing, and, and you're right, that, that is the kind of incentive that might work. Mm-hmm. Although then you could just make it not a universal basic income, but the only people that get a stipend are people that are at university or something. Right. But the problem with that is that so many university courses are so incredibly unrelated to what you might do in work. Like we've talked about my problems with universities before, but like you really want the government to pay extra for somebody to go study like comparative world literature or something. I I don't find that to be a useful incentive. Maybe you can incentivize the right subjects or the right fields that need attention. That's true. Or that the government would like people to take an interest in. Yeah, that could could definitely help. Just incentivize engineering degrees. There'd definitely be ways to create a system that would incentivize certain fields over others. I struggle with that because I think government interventions are inherently kind of blunt instruments. Mm -hmm. And they're not very fast changing and they're not very versatile. Mm -hmm. For instance, right now we have this burgeoning industry around AI, right? Right. Well, it's only really become a thing in the last five years. Mm-hmm. And so that would probably be excluded from the, this requirement in government offering. You know what I mean? Like how rapidly could they really adjust and change to these sorts of things? How do they predict what the industries are that are going to be needed in the coming 20 years? You know what I mean? Like 
Th- those sorts of things are much more easily handled by the free market. Right. Well, I'm sure you could... And that's exactly the issue. The, when you see the free market kind of breaking down or mm-hmm. potentially breaking down. And, and really, like I think the reason why the free market is potentially breaking down mm-hmm. is not just this whole thing with automation. It's because we've made life so much easier for people who aren't doing anything productive. Mm-hmm. Now video games make leisure time much nicer and much more pleasant. Because we incentivize home ownership for so many families and big homes across mm-hmm. the U.S., a lot of families have a lot of space where they can just have their children stay in one of their rooms. Right. And as all of our goods and things, especially necessities, have gotten so much cheaper, it doesn't cost nearly as much for a family to just leave one of their children in the house just living off of them. It's much less burdensome than it would have been 50 years ago. Right. I would imagine all of these guys that we're talking about who are not doing anything particularly productive, mm-hmm. if they were out on the street and struggling to feed themselves, right. they would be trying much harder to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's almost like because we've gotten better and because we've made these things better, we've also made mm-hmm. it easier not to push yourself. Right. And so, yes, you need to increase the incentives on the positive side, but maybe you need to increase the disincentives on the negative side too. And it's hard to parse exactly where you want that to be because you don't want people to be suffering and struggling and out on the street, but you don't Mm -hmm. really want people to be twiddling their thumbs and just doing nothing of benefit to move society forward. You could definitely do something with regards to the basic income to keep Going back to that as a reference. Well, do you think we should have a basic income? Is, is that a policy you would be in favor of? I wouldn't be against the idea. Okay. Why is that? Like, what's your thinking on it? Generally, I think there are people who probably do work really hard. Hmm. And maybe they just aren't very bright. And they just don't have those same opportunities that others might. Whether it's luck or an inability on their part. And I think something like that would help them struggle a little less but a basic income would help everyone right so like one of the big complaints about a basic income is that we took the money that's spent on social programs now Mm -hmm. and we turned it into something like a basic income as a replacement Mm -hmm. the basic income would benefit wealthy people much more than welfare does right because welfare currently gives no benefit to wealthy people or middle income people but it gives all of the benefit to the poor And when you're talking about these people who are poor and struggling, they would get much less from a basic income than they would from something like welfare because you would have to lower the rates so much because you have to give it to Bill Gates and you have to give it to, you know, all the rich people, Michael Jordan and everybody. Mm, That's true. I guess it depends on how you set up the system for that. Well, but the system has to be universal. That's the whole idea. Well, what I mean is like where the money would come from. Do you think they would just remove social programs? Do you think they would create some new tax well it'd be extraordinarily expensive so i think you would have to raise additional revenue and cut current expenditures like you would not be able to maintain social security and medicare and welfare and all of that stuff and put on a basic income of any kind of Mm. i mean maybe you could do it for like ten dollars a month but not any kind of substantial basic income that would be right impactful in any way so would that just be like budget cuts across the board would you focus specifically on social programs, maybe the military? I mean, the military is always a, a kind of different debate. I mean, it just seems so bloated to me. Sure. And you, you, some people would say that and some people don't think it is. But 
the military should be at whatever level the military should be at. You know what I mean? And it really, when you're thinking about it, it shouldn't really be a budgetary concern as much as a security concern. And if you think the military is too large, it's because you don't need as much of a military to ensure security. And if you think it needs to be as large as it is, that's because you think it needs that much in order to secure our nation, right? I feel pretty secure. And I think I would feel pretty secure if the budget was probably half of what it is or sure is what it is like but you you understand what i mean like yeah there is a trade-off with the military obviously mm-hmm. and there's choices that you have to make with it but it's not really like you should adjust it because of budgetary concerns you should really like if you get into a war you have to spend what you have to spend to win the war winning the war is the thing that matters and the thing that matters with the military is maintaining security whatever it costs maintaining security is the thing that matters and i agree that i think it's probably larger than is necessary mm-hmm Plus, like you were talking about with automation, we have drones now sure. that are probably a lot less expensive to make that can fire missiles from wherever we want without putting any people in danger. And I'm sure something like that is considerably less expensive than paying whatever amount people pay to have 1,500 or 2,000 or 5,000 soldiers that aren't doing anything. Well, I mean, the real expense in the military is aircraft carriers and planes. Yeah, I know. Apparently, like, 60% of the budget goes to the private companies, obviously, like, military, industrial companies. Yeah. And so it all goes into... Equipment. What you were saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, carriers But, I mean, expensive. how much of that is necessary? This is the eternal debate, which is not a debate I'm trying to have, particularly. Right. <laughs> I think we are getting a little off topic. Maybe we'll talk about that some other time. Yeah. Like, I think most of the funding would have to come from other social programs because it makes sense that when you're thinking about a universal basic income, it is a social safety net, right? That That's the whole idea. Mm-hmm. And so yes. it makes sense to use it as a replacement for the existing social safety net. You don't want to have 30 different types of social safety net and each of them works for different people and everything. The benefit of UBI is that it's simpler and more uniform or... and easier to administer. We could tax capital gains as, like, regular income. Yeah, but that wouldn't give you enough for the UBI. I know it wouldn't. Like, you could do that. You could do all sorts of things in terms of taxes. Like, you could certainly eliminate mortgage subsidies, and you could eliminate homeowners' interest tax deductions. Uh You could do a lot of things to generate additional revenue. But the point is that it's going to be extremely expensive and extremely regressive because it provides a large portion of its money to wealthier people. Right. And that is an issue. And then the other issue is that you're making it easier not to work. You're making it so that people don't have to do anything productive. And that is a dangerous thing. The other thing, this is, I think, the unforeseen thing that people, for some reason, don't get, that Mm -hmm. it's really hard to have that and have immigration. Mm. I mean, you can have some immigration, certainly, but large-scale immigration is hard unless you are making two different classes of residents where... The new people don't get the UBI and the old people do get the UBI, but we've always been very resistant to doing anything like that. And uh-huh. so it's hard to see if we were letting in, you know, 100,000, 200,000 immigrants a year. Well, I mean, if the UBI was sufficient, some people I'm sure would quit a lot of part-time jobs they have to focus on things like school or yeah, to practice their music or art or whatever or to play video you know, games it would, yeah it would, or play video games i mean some of it wouldn't necessarily be productive but 
but I think it would allow a lot of people who want to do things that they can't due to time constraints or money constraints to go ahead and do them. And I think you would see more of that than you would people playing video games. Yeah, it's it's really hard to see what the ramifications would be. And it's also hard because the ramifications for us today or us in the coming years would probably be much less than the ramifications of people who grew up with them, right? Mm. Just like you and I use smartphones and we use them in our daily life, but we don't use them at all in the same way as somebody who got one when they were 10 and have been using it ever since then. Or who only know about smartphones. Right, right. That's what, Yeah, exactly. Like those people are using them in fundamentally different ways than we use them because we don't mm. interface with them in the same way. And it would, the, would be the same way with universal basic income. If you grew up knowing you're going to get this when you turn 18, mm-hmm. then you're going to think about the world differently. You're going to think about your incentives and what you should be doing. Even today, my parents were much more conservative in terms of what they were looking for for jobs and where they were looking to live and things like that than Uh I have been because Mm -hmm. I am much more confident in my ability to move abroad and earn money in different ways and the flexibility that I have and feel good that I'll make it work and figure something out. Right. They would not have done that. They were much more like get into a big corporation and work your way up the corporate hierarchy. And that's a different Mm -hmm. mentality because we grew up in different eras. Right. And the universal basic income would be the same kind of thing. A kid coming out of high school would be like, oh, I don't have to do anything for the next while. I'm just going to, I don't know, go travel the world. Because this is one of the other things that is an interesting thing where like you could easily go live in Thailand for probably $400, $500 a month. Right. If you had a universal basic income of like $700 a month, you go live in Thailand. It's nice. It's great. You're relaxed. You can just live on that for the rest of your life and never have to work. That's true. I mean, you could do that. I'm not saying that everyone would do that, but like these are the kind of perverse outcomes that you don't really think about and you don't really expect, but Mm -hmm. that could and probably would happen. See, it could also broaden perspectives and spark ideas if people that might normally not have been able to go outside of the country, finally being able to experience something they might not have otherwise might help them create a new business or start up a nonprofit or look yeah. to an industry that maybe people weren't focused on. I mean, just yeah. as much as they could have a negative impact, they could have, or I guess not negative impact, but as much as they could have no impact, they could also have a major impact. Yeah, I know it could have major positive ramifications. I don't doubt that. Like I've long thought of the uh, UBI as a potentially good policy Mm. but i think it's changed just like when we were talking about scarcity versus abundance right the entire way our society and our economy is set up is based Mm -hmm. on people working to change that so fundamentally if the ubi was big enough where you didn't need to work where you could survive on it without working right then that changes everything and it's really really difficult to predict how that will affect people that's my point Mm. That's true. But we should get more into this and like get back to government policy and tax policy and stuff and talk maybe talk about the UBI some more another time. Yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. True. True, true. You want to wrap this up? I do. I do in fact. Okay, so you guys can find our show notes at subjectradio. Oh, really quickly before I don't mean to interrupt John. We just wanted to give you guys a heads up in the next couple of weeks we will be discussing a Netflix documentary series called wild wild country me and john have decided that 
we will try to consume something. Not food. Well, maybe food, but I don't know if we could really talk about that. Consume some form of media and then talk about it. Almost like a book club, but for everything. A media club. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Just so you guys are aware, in case you were thinking about watching it, just in the next couple of weeks, it's coming up. We might spoil it for you if you haven't. Yeah, I watched the first episode and just thought this was exactly the thing that we should be discussing. And so many interesting aspects of it that i think we could touch on so we're gonna watch through the rest of them and yeah we'll talk about it on the coming shows so be ready to join our cult uh yeah it is it's a documentary about a religious minority slash cult that moved into oregon from india back in Mm. the 80s and it's it's fascinating so give it a look if you guys want to know if you're worried about spoilers you can just not listen to the end of one of the coming shows and uh yeah we'll, we'll keep you posted on that you can find our show notes at subjectradio.com slash wwots slash zero two two. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter at what is the handle? Is it at underscore wwots? That's the one. Oh my god, I got it right. Well done. Yeah, I don't I don't Twitter. Yeah, follow us there, and I guess I will talk to you next week, Mike. Talk to you then.
why, but when I get irritated, my face just gets all hot. I'm just, Darn you, and I shake my fist into the sky. You're like a angry blusher. Yeah, it happens. I get frustrated or upset, and my face just phew, turns red. Not like a beet, though. So not beet red. Give it 20 years. Then it'll be beet red. Right now, it's more of a rosy sort of... <laughs> Maybe like a tomato. Maybe it's closer to tomato. You've still got that youthful tomato look. (laughs) It'll slowly degrade into a beet. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, John.